you. If you've got a Bible, really helpful to turn to the book of Joshua. We're in Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4 here this morning. So book of Joshua, Old Testament, and chapter 3. Now, when the children of Israel had left Egypt 40 years before this book of Joshua, they encountered a big problem as soon as they moved out. And the big problem that lay in front of them was the Red Sea. There was no way of escape. It was blocking any route away. And what we happened, and we all know the story, hopefully we know the story, is that God worked in a miraculous way. God parted the water, and the Israelites went through to safety. And when that happened, nobody was in doubt. Nobody was in doubt of a couple of things. First of all, that God was with his people. This must have indeed been God's chosen people. God was with his people. And the second thing everybody knew when that happened is that God is a mighty God. And that was so important for the children of Israel because after they escaped Egypt, they went through the sea. There were lots of challenges and trials that lay ahead of them. And as they moved forward, it was really important that they grasped these two important truths. God was with his people and God is mighty. That would give them great hope, great assurance as they move towards the promised land. Now let's fast forward 40 years. They wandered for many years in between. The reason is because quite often they forgot those truths that God was with them and God is mighty. But here as we move forward 40 years, it's like a deja vu experience. Now they're not trying to escape anybody this time. They're actually trying to enter into the promised land, but they've got the same problem. Their way is blocked by the River Jordan, a mile stretch of water that blocks them and their entry into the promised land. Two spies have gone out. We read about that last week in chapter two. They've returned back with a positive report. And now it's time to take 40,000 fighting men across the River Jordan into the promised land to claim it so the people can live there in peace. That is a physical impossibility. Two spies can manage it. The Bible doesn't tell us how they got backwards and forth across the river. Maybe they got a small boat or a raft and they sailed across. But 40,000 fighting men with all their gear are not going to get across this river. Think of D-Day, that famous World War II event. 24,000 men went across the water on D-Day and that's with boats. This was 40,000 men without a boat in sight. How are they going to get across from one side to the other? But as we work our way through chapter 3 and chapter 4 today, we are going to learn two things. The same two things that the children of Israel learned 40 years before, and they were going to learn on this day here. As we'll see in chapter 3, they will be reassured that God is with them, and they'll be reminded in chapter 4 that God is mighty. Those are the two key things. God is with them, and God is mighty. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're somebody who claims to follow and know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to face challenges in your life. You're going to face some obstacles. Now, they're going to be very different. We're not talking about water here that needs to be crossed. It's completely different. But the challenges and the trials and the obstacles that appear in your life are going to be troubling for you. And as you move forward in your Christian life, these are two things you need to grasp as well. These are two things that you need to get into your mind and you need to get these into your heart. And as we enter a new week this week with different trials and challenges and things that are going to come up in your life, this is going to give real hope and real assurance in your life. And it's these two great truths. God is with his people 
God is with you if you're a believer, and God is mighty. Let's read chapter 3. Let's start at verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried, as, as soon as you see, sorry, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and he will be without fail. Drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down towards the sea of the Arab Arabia and the salt sea were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Amen. Right at the start of this chapter, the people are instructed. They're instructed to go out and head towards the river Jordan. But they had to follow something important. They had to follow the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we were introduced to the Ark of the Covenant when we did our series in Exodus. I preached on it about this time last year. And the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, wasn't that very impressive to look at. It was a small box. It was about three feet long, just under a meter, two feet high and two feet wide. What was impressive about it was it was covered in gold. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, those two tablets of stone that God had given to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. On the top, top of the Ark of the Covenant was the, the mercy seat. And every year, the high priest would take some blood, some blood that had been taken from a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat so that the people, the children of Israel, God's people, would be atoned for their sins. 
But the real significance of the Ark of the Covenant is what it symbolized. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence with his people. Now, normally the Ark of the Covenant stayed in the tabernacle. That was that temporary structure that would be replaced by the temple when they got to Jerusalem. But inside this tabernacle, this tent, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, that special place. And the Ark of the Covenant was put in the Holy of Holies. It's where God's presence dwelt. And when the tabernacle was set up, all the children of Israel put their tents, their camps, round about it. And it symbolized something really important. It symbolized that God's presence was right in the center of his people. And so the people would look, and they would know they were God's people because God himself, the living God, the God of all earth, his presence was in the middle of his people. But here as they move forward into the promised land, the Ark of the Covenant was taken out of the tabernacle and it led the way. The Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, led his people into the promised land. That was important for the people to know. As we move forward, with battles ahead, God's presence goes with us. How important that was for God's people. They looked out, and there was this river in front of them, but God himself was leading the way. And when they would get over the far side, they would look and they would see this incredible walled city, Jericho. We thought about this last week. 30 foot high walls, six foot wide, the first wall, then another wall, 12 foot wide. And they would look at it and they would go, that is too big and that is too mighty and we are too weak and we are too insignificant. But no, God himself, his presence leads our way. And as they went through the land to claim it in the name of the Lord God, it was God himself in this physical form showed himself to be leading the way. You see, in human terms, the children of Israel, even though there were 40,000 men here, they weren't the strongest army. They were bigger armies that they would face. They were armies with a lot more experience. But what confidence, what reassurance comes from knowing that God himself is with you. But here's what the Bible teaches us. God himself is still with his people. If you're a Christian here this morning, the living God is with you. And in an even greater way, he's not confined to a box that's out in front of you at a distance. We saw that in chapter three. The people actually weren't allowed to come close to the presence of God. They had to keep a distance. It talked about 2,000 cubits, which is about 900 meters. They had to stand back from the presence of God. They weren't able to come up close and personal. But we know the incredible story of the Bible. We know what happens in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, God himself, came and tabernacled amongst us. He lived amongst us. He became flesh. People could see him and touch him. And then he died on the cross for our sins, taking the punishment. His blood was shed, making atonement. There was no more need for a mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. He paid the price to make us at one with God. And we know that story from Easter, that really significant story, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he cried out, the veil in the temple at the Holy of Holies, and what was on the other side, the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, that veil was split from top to bottom, symbolizing that there was no longer a barrier between God and man, but actually there was open access into the presence of God. And in Jesus Christ, after he died, he rose again. He appeared to his disciples and he gave them an instruction. So Captain Jesus, 
gives an instruction to his followers. And what is the command from Jesus? I want you to go into all the world. I want you to go out into the world, not as an army to win battles with swords and spears, but I want you to go forward with an even greater weapon, which is the truth. And I want you to go and wherever you go in this world, I want you to share the, the truth. That's our command from our commanding officer, Jesus. I want you to make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as they, they go out with this great gospel commission, with this great mission to be involved in, Jesus gives his followers a promise. He says, I will be with you always. My presence goes with you, not just some of the time. I am with you always. And so if you're a believer, and if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the presence of the living God goes with you always. That's why the Apostle Paul in the book Galatians was able to write, I've been crucified with Christ. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Your old life has been put to death. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in the heart and the lives of believers. And how does Christ live in us? That's hard for our minds to grasp. He lives in us by power of God, the Holy Spirit, the helper who brings Christ's presence to his people. What a truth. You set out into this week. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. Be reassured that God is with you. And the people are told to prepare themselves. They're told to consecrate themselves. Verse 5 of chapter 3. Let's read that again. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecration is very important. It involved bathing. It involved washing your clothes and washing yourself. It was very symbolic for the children of Israel. And what it symbolized was that you were living a clean and a holy life. They were setting out to follow the very presence of God. They were setting out to follow the Ark of the Covenant. And as they followed a holy God... God's people have to live lives that are like God's. What did God say to himself? Be holy, for I am holy. And so what God was saying to them is, you're going to follow me into the promised land. If you're going to follow my presence. You need to be like me. Consecrate yourselves. Wash yourselves thoroughly as well. Now, there's a simple, profound lesson for people like ourselves today if we are followers of God. People who enjoy his presence must aim to be like him. Be holy, for I am holy. If you're a temple of the living God, you've got to be holy because there's a holy one living in you. And we're not talking about outward washing, plenty of showers or baths during the day. We're talking about a pure life. If you know God's presence, be holy, for he is holy. Now, I'm sure at this point, Joshua was anxious. He'd just been given this job as the leader. This is the first real task. This is the first time he has to step up, replace Moses, that great leader for 40 years, and lead the people into the promised land. Would they accept him as leader? Well, God reassures him. Let's read verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses... 
so I will be with you. And just as the people had known, once they came through the Red Sea 40 years before, everybody knew that God was with Moses because he had given the instruction, go through the river or go through the sea. They knew that God was with them. This day, all the people of the children of Israel would know that God was with Joshua and he was their true leader. But not only would the people know God was with Joshua, the miracle would also prove that God was with his people. Let's look at verse 10. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, his presence. Here, what will you know? Well, it goes on the next verses. The water's going to part, and he starts to give instructions and tells them. And when the water parts this day, you will know, and you will know for sure that my presence is with you. He also told, also told, as soon as the priests enter the river Jordan, the water will divide. Now, how is that possible? Well, I think there's an answer in verse 13. Let me read verse 13 to you. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from the flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. This is what's going to happen. The water's going to part. Where's the clue? The clue is in the phrase, the Lord of all the earth. This isn't some weak deity. This is the Lord of all the earth. If we believe that the Lord is the one who made all the earth, that he is the creator, that he is the one who put the laws of nature into place, if he made the laws of nature, he can stop the laws of nature. He can stop their water flowing and he can make a path. In fact, if he is the Lord of all the earth, if he is the creator, it is actually easier for him to stop the water flowing than it would be for us to turn off a tap in our house. Isn't that true? If he's the Lord of all the earth, it's easier for him to stop the water than it would be for us to turn off a tap in our house. And as they set out towards the water, we're given some extra detail in verse 15. We're told that because it's the harvest season, the banks are actually overflowing. The water level is higher than it normally is. And in fact, the Jordan is flooded. So I want you to picture the scene of the River Jordan. This isn't a tranquil book. We see this in the children's Sunday school books. We see this little calm water, that the river that they walk up to. No, this is a flooded river. And so as you can imagine flooded rivers, what happens? There's a torrent of water coming at speed down across here. It's as if God has brought the people here at the most difficult time, at the worst time in the whole year. Now, if this has been drought, summertime, and the water dried up, you think, well, that explains the miracle. The water sort of evaporated away, and there's easy. They can just walk through a few puddles and get across. No, the water level's at its highest. It's flowing over. It's going at a speed. Remember, it's a mile wide. It's not a case of just hop across to the far side. This is going to be a dangerous crossing. How is it possible? There is only one explanation in a flooded river. Only God could do this. And it happened just as God had promised. As the priests took their first steps of faith, and that's what they were, God didn't say to them, stand back, I'll part the water, and when you see that it's clear, then you march forward. No. He didn't part the water first. 
He said to the priest, you step forward and you could look very foolish if nothing happens here. If the priest just walked, you know, when do you stop? How far do you go until your head's under the water? It wasn't actually until they put their faith that God would do this miracle. As they took those steps of faith and their feet touched the water, that it started to part and 40,000 men were able to go past on dry land. Imagine what they thought. Imagine what was going through the minds of those 40,000 people as they walked through, looking all around them. Most of these people weren't alive when they come through the Red Sea. Remember, the people had died out. Perhaps some of them may have been children at that stage. But they haven't seen this before with their own eyes. And they would have looked at amazement as these waters parted. And what would they have known in their minds and their hearts that day? God was with them, and God is mighty. And God told them to do something very significant. We'll pick that up in chapter 4. So let's read chapter 4 together. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood and they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, and Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over for the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. Also Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, 
When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so when the people came out of the water, they were instructed to take 12 stones, take these 12 stones and make a memorial, one stone for each of the tribes. It was to remind them. And it was to remind them of the fact that they had been rescued through the water. The fact that these stones were lifted from this waterbed of the Jordan was proof that it actually dried up. It wouldn't have been possible to take them out unless the ground had been made dry. And so they made this memorial. We don't know if they put them in a circle or stacked them up. The Bible doesn't give us that instruction. But there were three purposes to these memorial stones. The first purpose was so that the people who'd come through that day would be reminded. They'd be reminded what happened. Because yes, they'd walk through the water and it was pretty easy. And then the walls of Jericho would fall down and that was easy as well. But as they started to live in the promised land, there would be tough days ahead and there would be challenges. You might think, how would they ever forget walking through the Jordan River? They would forget because that's human nature that we forget incredible things that have happened. We forget the blessings of God. And as they started to live in the land, they would forget what God had done in the past and they would start to doubt, is God really with us? Is God really helping us? Why have these things happened? And there would be times when they would become discouraged and then they would look and they would see these stones as memorial and they'd be reminded of the past, that in the past God was with them and God was mighty and God never changes. And so God was still with them and God was still mighty. And when they settled down in the land, they would start to get comfortable and they would settle, up their own, settle their own homes. And there's a temptation in that when you get comfortable. You think you have done it. And they would look around at their towns and their villages that they built. And they would look around at their families and think, we did this. We overcame the land. We are the source of our success. This was down to us. And then they would see the stones. And the stones would remind them that it wasn't them. But there was a God who went with them and there was a God who was mighty and it was a God himself who brought them into the land. That was the first reminder for the people themselves who saw it that day. The second reminder was for their children because there's a coming generation who didn't see this miraculous event. Because here's the reality. The miracles of God like this are very rare. They're unusual events. Yes, they happen, and God can do them whenever he pleases. But actually, as you read your way through the Bible, miraculous events like this are not the norm. That's why they're called miracles. If they were everyday events, they wouldn't be miraculous. That's why they have to build this memorial, because it will remind the people, this is what God has done in the past. He doesn't do this every day, but he did do it in the past. And this new generation who didn't see it with their own eyes would need to know, and they'd need to know that the Lord is a mighty God. And because he's the mighty God, he's the one you want to put your trust in. He's the one you want to follow. Psalm 78 is a great psalm of the children of Israel. It's actually very beneficial for us as well. And what they're instructed to do in Psalm 78, the people, God's people, is to tell the coming generation 
the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. That's what are instructed to do. See your children, children not even born yet. See when they're born, tell them the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. These great Old Testament stories. Why? What's the purpose? Well, Psalm 78 goes on, so that they may set their hope in God. That's why it's a memorial. So the children would ask, what do those stones mean? Let me tell you about the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and his wonders. And I'm going to tell you this story. You'll believe in him and you will set your hope in God and you will look to him and you will follow him as well. The third reason was that the other nations, these pagan, heathen nations all around would know who the true God is. Let me read verses 23 and 24 again. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. Listen to this bit. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And so these other nations who lived round about would see these stones. These stones would be a memorial. And maybe they would ask, what do these stones mean? And they would hear the stories of how God parted the water and they would realize that their gods weren't the real God. But there was a living God, a God of all the earth, and they too would put their hope in him. See, it is important to be reminded what God has done. It's important to be reminded what the mighty acts of God are in the past. And actually remembering the mighty acts of God is an essential part of the Christian faith today. We've read today from scriptures, how do we know the story of crossing the Jordan? We have it because it has been recorded, a permanent record that we find here in God's word. And so as we read the Bible, as we flick the pages over, we find account after account of the mighty deeds of God, the glorious deeds of God and his might and the wonders that he has done. And as we take time at home to read our Bibles, we read about the mighty works of God. And as we come to church, the start of each week, and God's word is read and explained to us, we hear about the mighty deeds of God. And as you listen, you hear about the wonders of God, and it should strengthen our faith. And part of reading these stories is so that we remember what God has done in the past. And as we think about moving forward and living in the present, we need to be reminded what God has done in the past, and that strengthens our faith. So keep reading your Bible. Keep reading this permanent record. Keep coming to church so you can listen, be built up, and edified in your faith as well. Another key element of the church is that we sing. We sing songs. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And one of the reasons we do that is an act of worship. We are praising the living God. We've been doing that this morning. But actually, these songs are a good reminder. And so the words in the song remind us about what God has done in the past. And it's good to be reminded. And so as we sing these songs of faith, it strengthens our faith for the week that lies ahead. Another key part, and something we're going to do this morning, is we're going to come to the Lord's table. And in front of our table, we have carved out those words of Scripture, that command from Jesus Christ himself, this do in remembrance of me. And so Jesus Christ instituted this ordinance of the, of the Lord's Supper as an memorial, an act of remembrance. An act of remembrance of what? 
the mightiest act of God. We don't come to the Lord's table every Sunday to remember God's children going through the Jordan or the Red Sea because we have something even mightier to remember when we come to the Lord's table. The greatest victory where Jesus Christ died on the cross, waging war against sin, waging war against death and triumphing, dying for a place, taking our punishment, rising again. And so we come here, we celebrate, we remember the greatest victory, the greatest act of God. And that's good for our faith. And I think it's really, really important that we do this. That's a regular part of our practice. Yes, we're being faithful to Scripture. But when do we do it? When did the early church meet? They met on the first day of the week, Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. As we launch out into a new week with all its challenges, with all its obstacles, with all its trials, we start the week by remembering. And what do we remember? Well, God is with us and God is mighty. And then we leave here and we go to live for him. We have something to strengthen our faith. And so when we leave the Lord's table, we shouldn't leave discouraged. In fact, we should leave with a joy in our heart because we think about the greatest triumph of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know, parents, you have a vital role as well. We don't have a heap of stones here, but your children might say to you, what is that table at the front and what's underneath the cloth? And when we have a family service, I always take time to explain it to children. But when your children talk to you, what does that mean? Well, tell them about the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and his wonders and explain what the bread means and the wine, what it symbolizes and what it represents. And the reason we teach our children is because we want them to put their hope in God. What lies in store for you this week? I'm not sure what lies ahead for you. You maybe don't even know yourself. You're not going to have to cross the River Jordan. You're not going to have to face any ruthless armies. If you need to go to Bangor this week, Belfast Lock is not going to part. God could do that, but I don't think he's going to do it this week. You're going to have to use the road like everybody else. But there's going to be bigger challenges for you. And there's going to be bigger trials in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's going to be daily spiritual battles that you're going to face. There's going to be battles within your own flesh, that sinful nature that wants you to give in to sin. You've also an evil enemy, the devil himself, who wants you to stumble, who wants you to reject following Christ, who wants you to give in to temptations on a daily basis. There's going to be opposition from others. Maybe you're in school, you go into that classroom tomorrow, try and live as a Christian. There's going to be challenges, there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be difficulties to make a stand. You go into that university lecture room and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. You go into that workplace, maybe back into that home where there's people who are hostile or antagonistic or laugh at you because of your faith. You try and be a faithful witness in your neighborhood. There's going to be challenges this week. And every day, there's going to be spiritual battles. And so that's why it's good at the start of the week to come here. That's why the Bible says, don't neglect the assembling together as the manner of some is. It's Christ's design that we meet together, that we're reminded God is with us and God is mighty. We hear these stories and they encourage our faith. 
And what do we learn as we think about the story of Joshua today? We are reminded of a few things. We're reassured that God is with his people. He's with the children of Israel past, and he's with the church today. He says, I'll never leave you and not forsake you. That's true in the classroom tomorrow, in the home. God is with his people. What else are we reminded? God is mighty. We have a mighty God who is with us. As you face those challenges that may be big and large and loom over you as well. We learn that from the story of Joshua. Some people might go, well, that's Old Testament. That's what happened in the Old Testament. Yes, but it gives us an insight to the character of God. And what does the scripture remind us? What's that verse you're reminded of as you come into church every week, right in front of you? In fact, you don't even look at it now because we, we just ignore it. But it's there as a reminder. And what does it tell us about the character of our Lord? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have a God who doesn't change. So the God who is with Joshua and his people, it's the same God. He's with his people and he is mighty. And so as we step out and as we leave this building later and we head into this week, bring those truths with you. Let them strengthen your faith. Let's pray together. Dear Father,